Welcome to the Community Warehouse. This is Imran Namawala, and I'm joined again by my esteemed colleague and co-host, Habib Qadri. How are you doing? Doing well. Doing it's been well. a long time. Uh, yes, yes. How are you enjoying the Chicago summer so far? Hot, but it's, it's, I'd rather have that than the, the snow. <laughs> so uh, we're honored to be here again, and we have a very amazing guest on the show today who we've been wanting to have on for a long time, and her name is Dilnas Warich. And she is the president of, at the Warch Family Fund, which works to uplift Muslim American communities by investing in the capacity of leaders and organizations and amplifying their stories and voices. Dilnas has dedicated her family's efforts in engaging with diverse stakeholders, furthering pluralism, and helping build bridges. Dilnas is a formerly trained educator with over 25 years of experience in education. She holds a master's in literacy from Northwestern and an MS and a BS from Loyola. And she is currently working on her master's in spiritual leadership. I also know Dilnas is someone you know personally, so is there something that I missed? Mm-hmm. Oh, yes, you know, for, for Dilnas is someone I knew when I was a little kid. So, you know, <laughs> I have an older sister who's like five, five years older than me. So they were all the same age. So so I've kind of kind of grown up in that same uh, community. Uh, but what's also nice is that this is an individual why we're excited, especially for all of the, the audiences here, is a, it's a mover and shaker. So it's not just like... You could see all, all the stuff that she has done, but when we hopefully have this conversation, you'll see that she's been on the ground level, doing the service, doing a lot, and then at the same time supporting it. Uh, and you'll see the different initiatives, hopefully, in this conversation that will help us get a better understanding of what uh, we have as organizations have to do to, to get the support that we need, but at the same time, understanding the thought process of philanthropists, of what they are looking for. So I'm really excited that she, you know, her to take her time and do this, uh, and may Allah bless her and her family who have been consistent for many years uh, supporting us and all the organizations throughout. I mean, Sister Dunlas, firstly, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Are you from Albany Park? I'm not from Albany okay. Park, but I actually was born in um, Hyderabad, India, which okay. is central India. And then I came here when I was two years old to Chicago. And I've been living in Chicago for 50 years. Amazing, amazing. And that's actually a great segue because sometimes when we meet someone, we look at all the accomplishments, we see the degrees and the entrepreneurship and all the community work they're doing. But can you talk to us a little bit about how we arrived at the Dilnas that we have today? What what was the uh, what was the focal point that gave us this, this finished product that we have today? Oh, I love that question because I think when I come to you with this conversation, I come to you with all the weaknesses, with all the scars, with all the strains, but I come to you as a whole person when I talk about all of those aspects. So thank you for asking me that question. So um, yes, my sister and I um, came to Chicago with my mom and dad when I was two years old. Uh, We migrated here. My parents were definitely um, doing hourly wages. They were the working poor. We definitely um, understand the difficulties immigrants go through and the difficulties um, children go through when they have parents that don't really understand the school system. So my sister and I went through the CPS school system all the way until high school and then um, I graduated from Loyola University, and then I went on to get my master's, but I'm pretty much a Chicagoan. Um, Go Bulls, go Bears. We're pretty much uh, really embedded and invested in Chicago. We consider Chicago our backyard, and how do we make sure the voices of American Muslims in Chicago are really being uplifted? I know that because you've been grounded in in this community, um, you've seen a lot of organizations You've met with a lot of organizations, not just in Chicago and even uh, throughout. When you look at philanthropy in America, what do you see? 
I'm first going to go back to the word philanthropy. The roots of philanthropy come from for the love of humankind, the love of humanity. So as Muslims, um, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has guided us to make sure that we make sure that we give almsgiving as a p- pillar of our uh, religion. So zakat is definitely one of our pillars of our religion. Um, sadaqah is an add-on bonus, a smile, a nice kind word. Opening the door is definitely a sadaqah, which is part of our religion. So I think about this word philanthropy. So growing up, being in underserved individual person of color, I would have never thought I'd call myself a philanthropist. So I thought a philanthropist was a white, rich man who was famous, that was a billionaire, and then just gave out money for fun. And I was like, yeah, I'm not a philanthropist. And then I just grew to learn what the word meant. And all of us really love humankind. We want the best for humankind. And I think about, you know, five years ago, my sister, who's just one year older than me and much wiser, as Habib knows, um, she's like, why don't you just call yourself a philanthropist? And I was like, no, why would I call myself a philanthropist? I literally thought it was a negative word. And she's like, you do everything a philanthropist does. Why don't you just own it? And I was like, hmm. So I had to do my homework to understand. And I also had to change the single narrative of what a philanthropist is. So as a Muslim woman, I am really proud to say I am a philanthropist. I am very indebted into understanding the um, a Muslim American community and how do we support the Muslim American community and how do we really support America to be a better America. And as we support Muslim American communities, we make America better. And we do that by saying, you know what, we have this food pantry or we have this uh, mosque or we have the senior center. And these organizations are creating a better America by supporting the individuals that go into these organizations and get the mental health and the support and the financial support and the parenting support that they need. And because they're getting that support, we're actually creating a better America together. It's amazing because as you're speaking, the first thing that I thought about was that we're sitting right now at a hospital that is officially Chicago's oldest hospital mm-hmm. uh, that essentially went under, right? It went out of operations and it was it was purchased or procured by Muslims, by a Muslim non-for-profit. And here we are, you know, trying to uplift the spirits of a city. This is a safety net hospital. So at the minimum, 30% of the patients are uninsured. Nobody's turned away at the door. So I think this narrative of Muslims getting involved in, you know, in the American subcontext and us really uplifting and changing uh, the, not even changing, honestly, like extending the legacy that was created when, when people first started coming to this country from, from other continents. So the, the, the other question I have for you was you brought up the religious impetus in terms of, you know, we have cer- certain religious mandates to be charitable, to be kind, to help others. And this is not something that we do just for like brownie points. This is who we're supposed to be at our core. But what would you say you can attribute to your family or to your upbringing you know, your family's very in doubt. How did you define uh, th- this word again? The love For a love of people? Oh, for the love of humanity. So why is it that the Warch family loves mm-hmm. humanity? Because mm-hmm. you guys are doing a lot out there. You personally are doing a lot. So there's a religious reasons. But what, what mm-hmm. reasons from maybe your childhood? What aha moments while you're at college? Yeah. Um, so I think about um, if we don't know our story, we can't really tell our story to others, right? So 
my father-in-law, who was just an amazing individual, um, really was a great businessman. He created a company that um, did quite well. And then when he passed away seven years ago, it was really a tragedy, not just for our family, really for the entire community. It was such a quick death. So when he passed away, my husband and I really had to explore how do we want to you know, uh, do the business work? How do we want to do the philanthropic work? So I took over the philanthropic part of our family giving, and I was going through all of our giving every year that my father-in-law did completely on his own as he was, as he was running this amazing business. And I realized so many gaps. I realized, you know, it's hard to manage business and philanthropy. You can do one really well, which he did business phenomenally well. And then I noticed with philanthropy, if you were Pakistani and if you were a male, you got a lovely allocation from my father-in-law because he knew Pakistan and he knew, you know, the gender quite well. So those were the, uh, you know, individuals that got funding from my father-in-law. When I took it over, I wanted our philanthropy to look like America. And as American Muslims, 30% are black Muslims, 29% are Caucasian, 27% are South Asian. So I looked at our entire portfolio and I wanted our portfolio to look like American Muslims. So it's been seven years that I've been on this journey, but I can honestly say when we look at our giving, 30% is going to mosques and um, organizations that are run by black Muslims. And we go out there and we do the search and we make sure it's not a dog and pony show. So it's not as if I go in there and and I say, oh, show me your books. Let me know everything. 99% of the time, my husband, my boys and I, we go in there and we volunteer. We go in there and we are at the food pantry. We'll be at an iftar and we just start talking to people. We ask people, why do you come here? What is the reason you're here? We'll go into, you know, make wudu and we'll look at the facility. We'll go and look at the, you know, what type of zakat allocations they're receiving, what type of senior opportunities they have. So we're doing our homework in the ground, in the area that's most needed. When I get to like, you know, nice mailers, when we get, uh, you know, uh, get invited to special conversations, we're really not learning the truth about the organization. So we kind of do that work for about a year. After we've learned about the organization, then what we do is we find a certain project in that organization and we say, you know, what does it look like to really fund um, making sure the Wudu facility is really up to par or they have water that is really clean drinking water or they have services where the youth are getting mental health facilities. We can bring in, hire a, um, you know, a counselor, a social worker that is well trained and understanding of the community. So we find a project to do and then we are very trust-based philanthropic. We will do a three-year commitment minimum. Maybe it'll be a lifelong commitment as long as, um, you know, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given us the funds, we'll commit to that organization. And then what we do is we also believe in asset-based communities. We go back regularly and just talk to the community and understand what the community wants, not what we think is best for the community, but what the community wants. So there's a lot of give and take. There's a lot of understanding the organization. And then the organization should come to us. We've tried to build a relationship where it's not just once a year they get a check, but it's literally every couple of months, every, you know, whenever there is a need for a new board member or a new staff member, or there is a new fundraising initiative, they contact us and say, you know, Dilnaz, we're interested in this. We're interested in that. Can you help us find us a new board member? Can you help us find us this? It is a symbiotic relationship. It is not a power. Hopefully it's not too much of a power dynamic, but it's more of a symbiotic relationship.
So, so I'm kind of hearing there's, there's a, is, do you think there is a correlation between philanthropic work and community building? Um, yeah, so definitely I think about how there's the ayah in the Quran that talks about like, you know, you give with the right hand so the left hand doesn't know, you give with the left hand so the right hand doesn't know. There is definitely that ayah, but I also think there's the intention of why we give as well. So some of our giving is done where there's a lot of secrecy and no one has a clue of where we're giving and why we're giving and how we're giving. But then there's the other part of our giving where we really want to say, guess what? Here's a Muslim family giving to an institution that works with a re-entry individuals because we want to make sure that those individuals at least get a first chance. It's not like they're not getting, they're not working on their second chance. They haven't even had a first chance. So we're building those individuals. We're building those communities and making sure the philanthropy is not just writing an allocation, but really um, walking the journey with them. So you talked a lot about the, your particular method in terms of working with communities is not uh, there's a trust component. Mm -hmm. So, what are some ways that you are able to validate ideas as they come to you? So, now as people make pitches and uh, communities want to get the support of your trust, wh what are some things that you look out for? What advice would you give to some communities that might be listening now? Like, how, how do you validate ideas that are presented to you? Yeah. Um, so, we have four family values. So, our family values are transparency, compassion, um, collaboration and urgency. So sometimes people will go, gosh, Dilnaz, you're like, you talk so quickly. You're like always on the go. And I was like, I think every Muslim American is, um, has a sense of urgency. I don't want to change the world, inshallah, in 10 years. I want to change it tomorrow. I think about the head and the heart. And we're, they're only about one foot away, right? But I want to use my head and I want to use my heart. And I want to make sure there's a change tomorrow. The longer we wait, the more individuals will suffer. And I want to make sure the suffering, um, which is part of this world, this is what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given us, but I want to minimize it as much as possible. And if there's something we can do, is I want to make sure we do it with a sense of urgency. So I think urgency is definitely one of those issues. The next thing is transparency. It is very open and honest conversation between the funder and the fundee, making sure that the funder says clearly, I would like, you know, regular reporting. I would like to have regular conversations. I would like whatever the funder wants. He or she is making sure that conversation is had up front. It's really important for the fundee to say, yeah, I'm so sorry. We can't do that. That's not with our, within our wheelhouse. The more you have those honest conversations up front, the easier the relationship will go. The next thing I would say is collaboration. There is no need for Muslim communities, Muslim um, nonprofits to, to be doing their work in their silos. Something that I've learned about nonprofits is, number one, they're really working with a lack of time. Everything has to be done tomorrow. Grants need to be written tomorrow. Everything needs to be like looking perfect tomorrow. So they're working with a lack of time. Nonprofits are also working with a lack of funding. They just don't have the funding. They're constantly looking, where's the next uh, you know, funding going to come? The next thing about nonprofits is um, a lack of innovation. It's always you know, this is what we did 10 years ago. This is what we did 30 years ago. So they can't be innovative because innovation requires money and it requires time. They don't have money. They don't have time. So it's hard for them to be innovative. And the last thing, especially with Muslim-led nonprofits, is we're understanding they're dealing with Islamophobia mm -hmm. as well as internalized Islamophobia. Yep. 
As Muslims, sometimes we beat ourselves up. We don't think we're good enough. So how do we make sure we build our self-confidence in our organizations, but we also make sure that the larger world knows the great work we're doing? You touched on collaboration, and it's a very important point because what we find often is that I think, and it's somehow connected to even that internalized Islamophobia where we're all competing, at, like we think we're all competing for the same mm-hmm. funding or we're going to the same donors. Um, and then you find that seldom do we want to collaborate or open up with one mm-hmm. another or be transparent with one another. So what are some practical steps from your experience organizations and individuals can take to really start trusting one another and learning how to work with one another? Yeah, so that goes back to the scarcity mindset versus the abundance mindset. So our family um, did a three-year action-based initiative um, based in Indiana University Lilly School of Philanthropy. So we did it in um, 2020. The first year was, um, I'm sorry, the the initiative is called Community Collaboration Initiative. And the first year in 2020, the goal was collaboration through trust building. We brought together 25 Muslim-led nonprofits in the legal sector, the mosque sector, in the um, uh, community organizing sector, in the public policy sector. We brought 25 organizations together and we said, okay, let's have monthly conversations. Whatever you want to talk about, we have a facilitator that's, um, you know, trained in facilitation to do this work with you. So we went from 25 um, organizations to 22 organizations in the first year because some organizations really just didn't have the time and the capacity, but they also didn't want to be vulnerable. Trust building is probably one of the hardest things to do, but rebuilding trust is even harder. So in our Muslim-led nonprofits, as Habib can tell you, um, he meets people every single day. Like you're talking to this organization and that organization. But how many times do we put in our calendar, I need to meet with this organization every single month. And I want to discuss this. And I want to be vulnerable. And I want to learn from the person that's doing this. And I want to share my findings and my challenges and my strengths with that person. So what we did with Community Collaboration Initiative the first year was just have honest conversation. It was really hard. It was really hard. Um, As a funder, I wasn't allowed to be on the call while they were having the conversations, but I would hear them afterwards. So I would hear all these 25 conversations afterwards every single month, and I'd be like, wow, this is really hard. It's a three-year research-based initiative. So I didn't know how we'd get to year three, but alhamdulillah, we are in year three right now. So in 2020 was collaboration through trust building. 2021 was collaboration through doing a project together. So the 22 organizations had to get together in their group and do a project that they wanted to do without additional funding from any other source. So they did a project, our mosque group, which was consisted of Islamic Foundation North, Mecca Center, MCC, Muslim Community Center, and Nigerian American Association. Nigerian Islamic Association. These are four groups, completely different budgets. One has a budget of about 500,000, where there's two of them that have a budget of about $8 million. They were so great about getting together and doing a project on mental health. They were like, that's the most important tarp. Like, this is what we need to do. So they did a webinar during the month of Ramadan. They created their flyers. They got their imams. They got their youth coordinators. And it worked really well. So that was year two project. While the year two project was going on, we did something called a year of learning. 
year of learning was really to understand the philanthropic community. When I talk about the philanthropic community, there is the Muslim philanthropic community, which is just a beautiful lake and we're swimming and we're doing laps and we're really comfortable. We're all giving because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is asking us to give. Our faith asks us to give. There is this ocean. The ocean is filled with trillions of dollars. It is community foundations and it is foundations like Ford Foundation, Bush Foundation that has lots of money. But our Muslim donors and our Muslim nonprofits have a hard time going into that large foundation world. Again, I think it goes back to Islamophobia. It's our internalized Islamophobia saying, oh, I couldn't, I I would never ask for a million dollars. I don't deserve a million dollars. I don't know if my organization could really reach to that level. And then there's the outside world telling us, yeah, why would, you know, your organization that's only been around for five years, you know, be worthy of that uh, grant? Why would your organization even apply to that grant? And through the year of learning, what I also learned as a funder, I had about 130 conversations last year. In the 130 conversations, I heard words like, oh, I'm so sorry, we're religion blind, or we're religion discriminatory, or we just don't fund religious activities. And before I went into the organizations, I would be like, "Hmm, look at your 990. I actually saw in 2020, you funded 25 Christian organizations. Wow, you have a Jewish board member. So if you're religion blind, how could you have a Jewish board member? Because it clearly said rabbi so-and-so. So I said, just the way you're funding Christian and Jewish organizations and faith-based organizations because you know they're uplifting the community, what does it look like to also fund Muslim-led organizations? Because a refugee that comes from a predominant Muslim community or a country is not going to go to a organization that they don't feel most comfortable with. They're going to go to a mosque. They're going to go to a community where maybe someone might wear a hijab or someone might understand their cultural sensitivities. So when I kept pushing back, they're like, wow, that's really interesting. No one's really kind of pushed us on that. Let us think about it. Then I would have a second conversation. I realized when I had the second conversation, I hit a home run. Then I could tell these you know, CEOs and presidents that had like billions of dollars behind them, hey, you need to see Muslim communities as an asset-based. Not as just sucking money from your foundation, but let's listen to the community. So the third year of our research-based initiative is called um, Collaboration Through Sustainability. So alhamdulillah, right now we're in our third year. Our 22 organizations are doing something called a Muslim Collaboration Prizes. We have gotten $1 million for the Muslim Collaboration Prizes, $500,000 came from Chicago Community Trust. So for two years, Chicago Community Trust watched our family and watched um, a community collaboration initiative. And they're like, wow, you, you really understand the Muslim community. You really see this value. How do we learn more? So we got a $500,000 check from them. But it is so important as Muslims, we not just look to our larger community to support us, but how does a Muslim community support itself? Alhamdulillah, through funding, we got $500,000 through Muslim funding. So $500,000 through Chicago Community Trust, $500,000 through Muslim funding. And inshallah, the prize, um, Muslim Collaboration Prize, will be announced on October 1st. 
So we'll see who wins the Muslim Collaboration Prize, inshallah. Shout out to whoever's running your social media because I do see the updates on LinkedIn. Oh, good. So that's, that's been working really well. <laughs> Just amazing stuff to hear from you. Um, hey, for a lot of the individuals out there, you know, you've accomplished quite a bit. And, you know, from, and someone's like, well, you know, she has a University of Indiana philanthropy. Now you're doing your seminary at uh, Bayan and I think Chicago Theological uh, Union. So you have all these things happening. And I've known that for, uh, to, do all, to, to do all this, how important is it to take care of yourself? Now I know you've, you've uh, Mount Kilimanjaro, I think you, yeah. you, you did that hike. Uh, I know you run. So I, I think so. I just wanted to see just for a lot of the individuals out there who are working in, in, in organizations and whatever careers they have and they want to give to the community. But, um, you know, just kind of getting to know you, uh, how important is kind of taking care of yourself? Yeah. Like so that's my favorite question. I'm so glad you asked me that. <laughs> um, no, honestly, I think I was raised as I think. All parents do the best they can. Every single parent tries the best they can, and um, they, you know, raise their children. I have two sons. I know I try the best I can, but I know I also have shortcomings. So I think it wasn't until about I was about 45 years old. So when I was about 45 years old, and my, um, you know, family trajectory really changed. Um, some people could have called it a midlife crisis, but I don't use that word at all. I call it a midlife awakening. So when I was 45, I had a midlife awakening and I realized I need to take care of Dilna's. I need to take care of me. And if I don't do that, I cannot take care of anyone else. So what I did was um, I just really needed to get away. I needed my time on my own. And we, uh, I took a trip to Kilimanjaro, Tanzania. I climbed Mount uh, Kilimanjaro. I did a seven uh, day hike. And um, it was myself and the porter and, you know, uh, this other uh, cohort that I went with. But every day I was on that seven day hike, I cried with Ella Spanathala. I smiled with Ella Spanathala. But every step I took, I knew Ella was pushing me up that mountain. There was never a moment where I thought, oh, my God, this is too hard for me. I just can't do this. There was this like sense of energy I got because I was completely committing myself to a higher being. And I came back with this like renewed sense of energy. And I realized, number one, in every decision I make, is, is am I pleasing God? Am I pleasing the higher being that has placed me on this earth? Number two, I think about, is this what Dilnaz wants? I think about myself. Am I doing this really because I want to do it? Am I pleasing someone else? Is it making me happy? And the third thing is really my family. Alhamdulillah, I'm really blessed with a lovely family, husband, children, um, parents. But it's also a struggle, right? And anyone that tells you life is easy, you know, just uh, smile through it. I don't know how honest they are, but I think being honest and vulnerable saying, yeah, you know, I went through a really hard time when I was 45 and Alhamdulillah, I'm 52 now. And I think every single birthday that I have, I get up and I go, um, God has placed me in this situation, but God's also told me th th four things. Number one, I need to get close to that problem. If I am not close to that problem and I'm just saying, oh, you know, here's a check or let me just, uh, you know, do this interview, then I'm not being proximate. Number two, I really need to get comfortable being uncomfortable. I think most of us are so comfortable in being in our offices, doing our little daily work, that we don't challenge ourselves to see what's out there that's going to make us uncomfortable. If we don't make ourselves uncomfortable, we're not going to be growing. The third thing I really 
every single day after Fudger is um, I, I live with hope. If I don't live with hope and I just think, oh, wow, this is really dismal. The mass shootings out there are really getting me down. The amount of, you know, um, refugees out there. I can't. I'm a human being and God has given me so much power and I need to live in hope. And I have to do what a little bit I can, but the rest of it I'm going to leave out, leave to Elispanathala to take care of it. And the last thing I want to do, which is really important for me, is changing the single narrative. There's so much single narratives about Muslim women, about Muslims, about, you know, uh, Muslim communities. I want to make sure that I tell my story and other Muslims are telling their story. Um, I guess the last question for me, and you kind of touched upon it, is, you know, there's a lot going on in life right now across the board. You know, uh, there's a talks about a looming recession. And for those of us who were adults in 2008 and then 2011 and when the housing market crashed and the stock market went down, like, you know, these things can depress you, right? And then Mm -hmm. COVID was here. Now we have monkeypox and COVID is resurging again and all these different things that can just add more stress if you're not able to keep things in perspective. So what advice do you have to the general listener, general viewer right now with all these things looming and just, you know, the media always kind of scaring Mm -hmm. us with all these different, like you mentioned, refugees this and immigrants this and virus is this. What are some general advice that you have for us? Yeah. Um, I think it's realizing that there's so much control we have. We have to control what we can and then just leave up, leave the rest to God. But um, really, I get up in the morning, you know, asking God for um, grace and ability to do my work. And right before I go to sleep, um, I'm a really good sleeper. I can literally like sleep and wake up in the morning when I need to without being um, woken up in the middle of the night. I sleep really well because I really think I'm just doing the best I can. I can't do any more. If um, God wants me to do more, then God will give me the strength to do more. But I'm doing the best I can and um i have to be comfortable with that no i really want to thank you for your time uh and and what you have shared with us may allah may god you know protect you your family your extended family and all the work and everyone that you've touched through your personal time through the conversations through philanthropic work you know uh, i think we're really excited hopefully the individuals who are listening to this could kind of get an idea motivate them and realize. So, I mean, I look at it a few things here. One, one is in form, uh, I think, from to be the process. I think I, I've realized something I've learned from this conversation the idea of being at the ground level, you know, and understanding who you're working with, even if you're supporting them, not just to give that check, but really getting to know them, understand them, help them in that process. Third, uh, the, the idea of having a checks and balance throughout in that process of a year, two years, three years, and kind of getting to more and at the different levels. Uh, four, it's so important to kind of reevaluating our own selves as we're going through that journey, uh, just because as we are sometimes giving advice to others, you know, we always have to look to ourselves, uh, you know, so really uh, appreciate you kind of uh, uh, doing this. And we might have to bring her back for certain different areas, because there's other talents that uh, this individual has. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Dilnas. Yeah, thank you, Dilnas. And uh, uh, really appreciated it. Thank you for the points on removing self-doubt and I guess in our communities with Islamophobia, internalized Islamophobia and being able to trust and work with one another. So I think a lot of life lessons to be learned from this talk and we'd love to have you on again. Yeah, sounds good. Can I just come back to one other yeah, please, comment? Please, 
Um, so a lot of times people ask, you know, how do we choose our organizations? And Alhamdulillah, there's great opportunities out there, right? So um, usually two months before Ramadan, we sit down as a family and we have a family meeting. And all four of us, my two sons and I, we've probably been doing this for close to, um, you know, six years. Everyone gets to have a, a purposeful organization. You need to sell the organization to the rest of the family members. So what we do is um, each one of us chooses an organization every single year and brings it back to the family and says, hey, I, I looked up this website or I talked to this person. So I think it's so important for us to choose new organizations every single year and be really purposeful. I, I don't really like the word passionate because I think passion ebbs and flows. When you're purposeful, you know what you're doing and why you're doing it and it, it'll stick with you longer. So we choose organizations and we make sure the rest of our family is bought into those organizations. But I also think let's not wait until Ramadan to find these organizations. Let's make sure we do our homework in advance and then also go back to the organization because all of these Muslim-led organizations during the month of Ramadan are are so overwhelmed with fundraising and um, everything that they're doing. Let's contact them a month in advance and say, oh, let's have a conversation. Let's discuss this. And making sure that children at a younger age are finding what they're purposeful about. It's not just parents telling us, isn't this a great organization? Let's choose this. Having the kids find their organization is really important as well. Purpose over passion. Maybe we, that's what we can name the episode. Purpose over passion. <laughs> thank you. Thank you again, Dennis. All right. Thanks. Assalamualaikum.